Thank you for listening to this podcast from Renew San Diego, a church for the good of all our neighbors in North Park, San Diego. If you're ever in the area on Sunday mornings, we'd love to welcome you. More information at renewsandiego.org. Share with a friend. See you soon. Philippians 2 says, Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take a moment now for silent reflection. Let us pray together. Gracious God, as we hear these ancient words, sometimes it's hard to hear anything at all because there's a voice outside that screams at us, that shouts at us to do more, achieve more, purchase more, look better, strive harder, and so we really can't hear anything else. Or even when we're still and quiet, there's that internal critic that tells us, you're going to fail. You got it wrong. If the other people knew the truth about you, they would run. And so now, with the voices outside, the voice on the inside, we pray that you'd help us to hear the truest voice of all, the voice of your own spirit. Right now, reminding us that you know us. You see us. You see us in all of our complexity and contradiction and all the ways we've got it together and the ways we don't, in the ways that we're so excited and thrilled and joyful and the ways we're depressed and scared and sad and angry and addicted. You see it all and you know us. And your response is to give yourself to us in sacrificial, self-giving love. And so now we invite you to teach us in a way that our lives would be changed by the power of your Holy Spirit, that the light of faith would come on more and more for each of us as we see your goodness. Would you transform us now and send us out to be your agents of renewal wherever we go? We pray these things for our good, for your glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, I remember my first trip to Tijuana was when I was in first grade, and uh, my family went down there. My Uncle Terry, uh, I think, rented a car, an old station wagon, and drove us down, and I was amazed as a six-year-old that there was a place 15 miles from our house where you could buy as many fireworks as you want, you know? (laughs) Now, getting them back across the border is a whole other thing. I'll tell you our strategy back then. I think it's changed. Um, But I remember that day, Uncle Terry wanted to teach me a lesson about saving and waiting, so he bought me this really big Spud McKenzie, the old dog, uh, mascot of a beer company back then, this ceramic Spud McKenzie piggy bank. And it was like life-size. It was huge. He invested in this thing. And he was going to teach Matthew, Maddie to save. And the first thing he did was put a $10 bill on the top of it so that one day all of my delayed gratification would pay off as I crack that thing open in the future and I have his $10 bill at the bottom. Friends, the sun did not set before I broke that piggy bank open and had a $10 bill in my hand. I mean, it's so ironic. He probably bought the thing for $15 and I took my 10 bucks because waiting, waiting is hard. 
Waiting was hard back then in the 1980s. Waiting is even more hard now. And you remember Blockbuster, right? We have to explain to children there was a place that was absolutely off the hook on Friday nights as everybody went to try to get a movie. And if you arrived and the VHS or the DVD was gone, you just had to wait until it came back in stock. You had to wait until, you know, that friend came over with their movie so that you could watch it. Now, I can pull up any movie I want on my phone through Apple, Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, you name it, right? Because waiting's hard. We hate waiting. You know, I remember when Amazon delivery came out. You can have anything delivered to your door in five days. And then we said, no, thank you. I want Amazon Prime. Next day, free delivery. Yeah. When we lived in San Francisco, we were in the pilot neighborhood for Amazon Now. You order something and you hit, you hit, you hit buy and it shows up at your door within an hour. Waiting's hard. We hate waiting. Can you, you can identify with that, right? I, I have a financial advisor who says he, the, the largest part of his, the hardest part of his work is having just people wait and not make drastic decisions. Because we, we rush, we run, we want it now. And so Advent comes in the midst of all that, especially in December. I mean, if you take Advent away from the whole thing, December is the season of more, right? It's more gifts, more presents, more purchasing. I mean, look at your, you know, look at your credit card statement for December. It's more. It's the season of more parties and business parties and corporate parties and friendship parties and more and more and more. And Advent comes and says, do you think maybe underneath all that search for more, there's actually a longing? There's actually a waiting. There's a desire to know that you belong, to know that you're not alone, to know that you can have joy in your life, to know that you can have connection and meaning. Are you attending to the deeper longings of your life? And you can't microwave that. It's not fast food. That's something you need to chew on for a long time. So Advent says this is the season of waiting. Advent actually means coming or arrival. It's the ancient word that a town would use when the king was going to come later. And it would be the advent of the king. It's preparing for the king to come. So on one hand, we remember that the king has come at the first Christmas, that God himself took on flesh, was born in a manger, that the king of the universe became one of us so that we might become one with God. And for Christians, it's a time of longing for him to come again, to make all things new, to finish the work that he began with his resurrection. It's waiting. Now, I understand someone here is right now, we sang a couple songs with the word king in it. I talk about Advent as the coming king, and you say, wait a minute. See, that's what I don't like about Christianity. It talks about God as this king, and the truth is, we're suspicious of kings and presidents and rulers because we know what they do with their power, right? Right now, in our country, there's an impeachment trial, and the accusation is the most powerful person in the country used their power for themselves. That's not a new story. So we're suspicious of power. We're suspicious of kings. And yet Jesus comes and says, I'm a king unlike any other. In all power and authority, I don't use it for myself. I divest myself of it and I pour myself out for your good and the good of the whole world. I'm a different kind of king altogether. 
Now, this scripture that we have today in Philippians chapter 2 uh, sometimes is called the ancient Christ hymn. In fact, scholars and theologians think that this may have been one of the first Christian greatest hits. By the time Paul is writing this letter to a church in Philippi 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, he's quoting this hymn in this passage, which probably would have already been memorized by everybody in the congregation. This was on everybody's Spotify list. This is what everyone was already talking about when they talked about Jesus. That he was a king who had equality with God and didn't exploit it, but poured himself out on our behalf. This is what they were saying from the earliest days of the church. This is what caused Jews, who would be the last people to call a human being Lord, the word that was attributed to Yahweh, to turn and say, he is Yahweh in the flesh. Or for Greeks and Romans who would be the last people to worship Jesus as Lord because Lord was the word reserved for Caesar, for the emperor. To say Jesus was Lord was treason. It was a very political word. Faith and politics were mixed together from the very beginning. And these people were saying Caesar's not Lord, Jesus is the true Lord of the universe. You see, when you see he's this kind of a king, it turns everything upside down. It gives you a new way forward personally. It gives you a new resource, a new vision, a new hope for this world. And so that's what we'll focus on today is this sort of king. God in the flesh who uses power and authority in love. Now, I'm using love very specifically. I'm using the word love in the way Jesus defined it. He said, you want to know what love is? Greater love has no one than the one who would lay down their life for another. He uses power and authority to lay down his life for others, for the good of this world. And so let's see, take take a look today at this king who gives himself on our behalf, who invites us to receive, and then who sends us out to do the same. First, he gives himself on our behalf. Now look, before we get into the gift that he gives, you have to say, who's the giver? A gift is only as good as the one who's giving it. If I write you a check for a million dollars, guess what? You don't have a million dollars, okay? If Mark Zuckerberg, the founder of Facebook, writes you a check for a million dollars, you can put a down payment on a home in a nice neighborhood and buy a boat and go on a great vacation because you have a million dollars. Who is the giver who's giving this gift? And it says in verse six, he is God himself. Not merely a good teacher, not a spiritual guru, Not a a kind-hearted, well-meaning person who just served other people. Very God himself. It says he is fully God. The pre-earthly Jesus existed eternally in the very form, the Greek word is morphe, of God. When you look at Jesus, you see the Father because the Father and him are one. It's not just he looked like him on the outside, like he had a God costume on, but on the inside he was something less than truly God. Fully God. Equality with God, not kind of God, not like God, not a demigod, God himself. The fancy word, the fancy terminology for this is, and get, get, get out your pens if you're playing Scrabble later, there, there is no ontological subordination of Jesus, okay? Ontological, being or essence. Subordination, ranking things higher or lower. It's not as though God the Father is big God, Jesus is little God, and the Holy Spirit is baby God. They are all God, intertwined, three in one. Same substance and being. When you talk about Jesus, you're talking about the creator of the whole world. If, in other words, if you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. 
Jesus is what God has to say to this world. Fully God and fully man. In verse 7, that word, uh, verse 7, it says, it's translated as but, but he emptied himself. It's also, uh, in the Greek, translated as while. Um, he's fully God while being fully human. It says he's being born in human likeness. That word for likeness is not simply a word for image or similarity. It's a word to say the same substance, the same being. In other words, Jesus became a human being not merely, uh, not merely becoming a human being, uh, but becoming a human being 100% human, 100% God, not 50-50. And what does he do with all this godness? What does he do with all this power and authority? I could tell you what I do. It's not what he does. What does he do with all this godness? He humbled himself. He became fully obedient. You know, this echoes the earliest stories in Scripture where the first Adam, in his human freedom, uses it to disobey, and the entire creation becomes unraveled. And now here is Jesus, the new Adam, who has entire freedom and uses it to obey, to, re to heal the whole cosmos. Don't you see? He gives himself. He gives himself fully, right? I mean, sacrifice is not just giving, it's giving until you feel it. I don't think you could feel it any more than saying, and he humbled himself and became obedient, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Gave himself willingly and fully. This king doesn't use his power to take, he uses it to give, he gives his life. As one theologian said, he descends into greatness. This is the character of God. Therefore, he's fully exalted, verse 9 through 11. The one who gave all to redeem all has been given the name above every name, Lord. So here's the question. Whether you've been following Jesus for a long time or whether you're considering if you could believe these things, considering becoming a Christian, is your view of who Jesus is this grand? Because if you come to him just as an assistant, you know, someone that you buzz into your office every now and then when you need some advice, if your view of him is just kind of this far off, kind of keeping tabs on things, but not really involved in your life, you will never get to the truth of who Christ is. Are you dealing with a Jesus that you can control, that just happens to like the things you like and hate the things you hate, to like the people you like and hate the people you hate? If that is your picture of Jesus, you are missing out on the true cosmic Christ who rules all things. You're creating him in your own image to suit your own agenda, and we are all good at that. That's one of my, that's, that's why in the movie Talladega Nights, one of my favorite scenes in that movie, The Legend of Ricky Bobby, uh, they're, they're praying around the table. If you've seen the movie, you remember this scene. And they're basically taking turns talking about their vision of God, who they're praying to. And, uh, and, Cal, uh, and Will, Will Ferrell's character goes, you know, I like praying to little infant baby Jesus. Little in, infant baby Jesus in there in the little manger, six pound, eight ounce, but still omnipotent. It's, I'm, I'm saying the prayer. I can pray however I want to pray. And then, you know, Cal goes, I, I, I like to picture him in a tuxedo t-shirt because it says I mean business, but I also like to party. And then one of the kids goes, I picture him like a ninja taking out evil samurai. And everyone has their vision of who Jesus is. Now, that's a caricature, obviously, but don't we do the same? Uh, I read this article not too long ago about, it's called The Real Jesus Christ. And they talk about all these different versions of Jesus that we conjure up in our minds. They say, there's Republican Jesus. 
who's against tax increases and activist judges for family values and owning firearms. There's Democrat Jesus, who is against Wall Street and Walmart for reducing our carbon footprint and printing money. There's Touchdown Jesus, who helps athletes run faster and jump higher than non-Christians and determines the outcomes of Super Bowls. There's Yuppie Jesus, who encourages us to reach our full potential, reach for the stars, and buy a boat. There's Guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher who believes in you and helps you find your center. And then the author goes on to say, and then there's Jesus Christ, the son of the living God, not just another prophet, not just another rabbi, not just another wonder worker. He was the one they had been waiting for, the son of David and Abraham's chosen seed, the one to deliver us from captivity the goal of the Mosaic law, Yahweh in the flesh, the one to establish God's reign and rule, the one to heal the sick, give sight to the blind, freedom to the prisoners, and proclaim good news to the poor, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. This Jesus was the creator come to earth and the beginning of new creation. He embodied the covenant, fulfilled the commandments, and reversed the curse. This Christ is not a reflection of the current mood or the projection of our own desires. He is our Lord and God. He is the Father's Son, Savior of the world, and substitute for our sins, more loving, more holy, and more wonderfully terrifying than we ever thought possible. Is your vision of Jesus that big? You see, if you choose a version of Christ that only rubber stamps your own agenda, that might be comforting for a season. That might be convenient for a while. But that Jesus will never transform you, will never help you walk through the darkness into the light, will never change your life, and will never change this world. Will never sustain you. This hymn, this early ancient Christ hymn, is about a God who pursues you with self-giving, self-emptying love to redeem you and renew all things. Is your vision for spiritual connection this big? Is your vision of connecting to God this deep, this profound, this alive and vibrant? If not, you're missing out, but there's good news. He's closer to you than you think. As theologians say, he's closer to you than the air you breathe. And so he not only gives himself on our behalf, but secondly, he invites us to receive. The Apostle Paul in this, in this passage invites us to have the same mind how does this impact the way we think, the way we act, the way we live? Christmas tells us that God came into the world. If Jesus truly is God, then there's good news. Because it means that God has not merely cut a hole in the ceiling of reality and is now shouting down and giving us instructions and ways to live a better life and to live our best life now and to be better people and to earn our way somehow into God's good grace. No, 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 no. If it is true that Christ truly is God, come in the flesh, then you know what that means. That God has cut a hole in the ceiling of reality and he's come down through it himself to walk among us, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves, to rescue us. And so even now, there's good news that your hard work of spiritual transformation doesn't begin with trying harder or getting your act together or stop doing those five bad habits that you have. It may include those things in the future, but the first step is to recognize that he has already come to you and he's breaking through now. And your hard work 
is to receive. Maybe that's the hardest thing for us, though, because we don't want to admit that we're needy. We don't want to admit that we need anything. And he says, let's just be honest. You're longing. You're waiting. You're hoping. You're thirsting, and I can fill you. So good news, we can say yes and receive. There's also good news that when you have him in your life, you can face anything. When you have him in your life, you can face anything in grief or sorrow or loss. The king who gave it all up is with you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. In Christ, you have a God who knows what it's like to be lonely. A God who knows what it's like to be cold. A God who knows what it's like to be abandoned. A God who knows what it's like to be afraid. A God who identifies with you. A God who knows what it's like to be tempted. And he knows you. And he has empathy toward you. And he feels what you're feeling. And he doesn't turn away in disgust and say, yuck. He doesn't stand far off and say, it's too messy. He enters in. He promises that you will be exalted as he was. So this means, friends, that you can have huge goals, you can have huge ambitions, you can begin to question yourself and say, why am I so pessimistic about the future? Because whatever it holds, he will be with me and he'll never leave me or forsake me. Maybe we can begin to say, like Paul in Romans chapter 8, 35, if God is for us, who could be against us? You see, you begin to have a new well of resources. That doesn't mean you simply smile when things are tough or minimize your problems or ignore things that need to be treated, but it means you can actually face the difficulties of this life in the much bigger story of God is with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us. There's also challenging news here. Because if it is true that Christ is God in the flesh, then there's really only one way to respond to him. Holy and completely. Some might say extremely. All in. As John Stott, the theologian, said, nobody has a moderate reaction to Jesus. They either hated him and killed him, or they ran away afraid, or they threw down everything and followed him and gave, them, gave him their lives. Jesus is coming and says, either crown me as king or kill me as an imposter. But the only thing you can't do is kind of moderately like me and appreciate me. I have given myself for you. Give yourself for me. He gives himself on our behalf. He invites us to receive. And finally, he sends us out to do the same. But one of the main points of this whole passage, Paul is saying... See how he loves you. Go and do likewise. When you see that he pours himself out for you like this, if it gives you any hope, if it gives you any encouragement, if it helps you tap into any deep well of love, then have the same mind of Christ and go and do likewise. Love one another as he loves you. That's really difficult. As we say often, we're reminded C.S. Lewis, the theologian and scholar, said, it's one thing to love humanity in general. It's quite another thing to love the person next to you because they have particular wants and needs and habits you can't stand, and so do you, and so do I. Love one another 
as he has loved you. Forgive one another as he has forgiven you. It doesn't mean you become a doormat and allow someone to walk on you and trample on you and continue to hurt you, but it does mean you begin to have a different attitude of the heart saying, I am not going to be a person who holds on to grudges. By the way, when you hold on to a grudge, you know it's a time bomb inside your own soul. I had a mentor who used to say to me, if you ever want to be a slave to someone, hold a grudge against them because they're not thinking about you and they're living rent-free in your mind all the time. And he says, be free of that. As Christ has forgiven you, forgive others. As he moves toward you, move toward others, especially in the pain points. As he invests in you, as he pours himself out, invest your resources in others. And so I just want to make a note here that when we talk about the mission of Renew Church, to follow Christ, to renew our neighborhood, our city, and our world, that's not something new. That's not something we invented. We're actually tapping in to this ancient calling that God took on flesh, that, that God actually loves this world, this world. Do you ever think about that? I, I, I met tons of people yesterday at this funeral that I, I did, and it's, at funerals, you always get people's take on where this whole life is going. And there's always a number of people that say, it's all about the afterlife, it's all about the afterlife, which I understand is comforting at a funeral sometimes. Um, But it's not only about the afterlife. He actually, if it was only about the afterlife, he wouldn't have become a human being. He would have just zapped us all into the afterlife. If it was only about heaven, then when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we wouldn't say, we would say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in heaven. But instead, what do we say? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The incarnation of Christ, Jesus' birth, shows us that he actually cares about the physical substance of this world. And so the renewal he's bringing includes spiritual renewal, reconnecting with God, forgiveness of sins, life everlasting. It is nothing less than that. And it's a whole lot more. It means living into the kingdom of God right now and bringing that sort of love and forgiveness and truth and unity here and now. It's interesting, when you read through scripture, the first image you have of God is creation in the garden. It's a picture of God rolling up his sleeves with his hands in the mud and fashioning humanity. A God with his hands in the dirt. And the last scene that you have of scripture is God cleaning up the toxic waste of evil and sin and rehabbing an urban home in the middle of it all in Revelation. And in the middle of all that, you have two, two major stories, Christmas and Easter. Christmas, which tells us God has become human, and Easter, which shows us God has renewed humanity. That means that to be a Christian is you love this earth and give ourselves to preserving it. That means we do have a future hope, but we also have a present hope because he calls us to follow him now as he's at work. That means we serve others to make sure that physical and spiritual needs are met. You know, here are the big questions. Why should we feed the hungry? Why do we invest in schools? Why do we move toward people who are incarcerated or addicted are languishing in hospitals? Why should we pour ourselves out on both sides of the Mexico-USA border? 
Uh, why do we view the work that we do in this world as not just a means of making money, but as a way of ministering and caring and adding beauty and creativity to this world? I'll tell you why. Because when we do, we're reflecting the priorities of God's coming kingdom. And when this happens, the world not only needs this, the watching world notices. It becomes show and tell with the gospel as we're embodying and showing what this coming kingdom looks like. And there was an author named Roy Hattersley, a columnist in the UK. Uh, he's an outspoken atheist. And he uh, wrote this article uh, in which, here's what he says. It ought to be possible to live a Christian life without being a Christian, laments Roy Hattersley, a columnist for the UK Guardian. An outspoken atheist, Hattersley came to this conclusion after watching the Salvation Army lead several other faith-based organizations in the relief effort after Hurricane Katrina. Notable by their absence, he says, were teams from rationalist societies, free thinkers clubs, and atheist associations, the sort of people who scoff at religion's intellectual absurdity. According to Hattersley, it's an unavoidable conclusion that Christians are the most likely to take the risks and make the sacrifices involved in helping others. Hattersley also notes this pattern of behavior goes beyond disaster relief. He says, civilized people do not believe that drug addiction and prostitution offend against divine ordinance. But those who do are the men and women most willing to change the fetid bandages, replace the sodden sleeping bags, and probably, and most difficult of all, argue without a trace of impatience that the time has come for some serious medical treatment. The only possible conclusion, says Hattersley, is that faith comes with a packet of moral imperatives that while they do not condition the attitude of all believers, influence enough of them to make Christians morally superior to atheists like me. Do you hear what he's saying? Now look, I'm not claiming moral superiority for Christianity. Christians are no better than anybody else. We have no stones to throw at anybody. It took nothing less than the death of the Son of God to make us right with God. Okay, I'm not claiming moral superiority. That's what he's saying. He's saying Christians have something the rest of the world doesn't have. Christians have fuel and hope and vision and drive in a way that is exponential compared to all of these other different groups of people. To which I think Jesus would say yes, because I'm at work in this world and these are my hands and feet. So friends, that's why we started Know Your Neighbor. And that's why we get up on first Saturday of every month and cook food and have music and move toward people that are difficult to talk to and start conversations that begin awkward and often end with great closeness and relationship. That's why we get involved in, you know, all sorts of different ways in our neighborhood. That's why we're starting this church at the center of the city for the good of all our neighbors. That is messy, friends. That's really messy. But as we do, we're participating in the renewal of all things. So this week, as we journey toward Christmas, friends, as you, anytime you see an Advent candle, remember, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will never overcome it. Jesus Christ is the light of the world, and he invites right now, even as he gives himself to you and me, he invites us to receive, and then he sends us out to be light and life wherever we go. And as you do, this world will never be the same. But you know what else? You will never be the same. Let's pray together.
Gracious God, we do pray now that you would fill our lives with this light, that you'd fill our hearts with your love and our minds with your truth, even now as we contemplate that you, the cosmic God of all creation, humbled yourself to become one of us so that we might become one with you. For those of us who feel far off, help us to see that you're closer than the air we breathe. For those of us who need to receive anew, help us to turn to you now. And Lord, would you fill us up with your inspiration to go out and be heralds of this good news wherever we go. We pray all these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen.